Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I give you Dr. Bill West. I thank you very much, uh, Alice. And I'm very happy to be able to meet on this historic occasion. You know, I've always liked girls better than boys. <laughs> and uh, so uh, this uh, is uh, an occasion that has very special appeal for me. Women of the Lost Cause. An Englishman uh, who toured America in 1863 wrote a book and one of the chapters was headed Cessation Women. And he wrote, I question whether either ancient or modern history can furnish an example of a conflict which was so much of a woman's war as this. The bitterest, most vengeful of politicians in this ensanguined controversy are the ladies. And there can be no doubt in the mind of uh, one who has spent a good deal of time in studying the great American conflict of the 1860s that this is a correct statement. Southern women were among the most ardent advocates of secession. And when hostilities erupted in the spring of 1861, mothers, wives, and sweethearts, with few exceptions, rallied to the support of the Southern cause. And Lincoln's call for troops on April 15, 1861, prompted an Alabama woman to go to the field where her two sons were working and urging them to enlist for the duration of the conflict. And throughout the South, women showed great displeasure to those who were hesitant about uh, volunteering. And a Selma, Alabama bell broke her engagement to a suitor who was slow to enlist and sent him a skirt and a petticoat with the message, wear these or volunteer. The patriotic fervor of some women uh, soared to such a point that they sought to take up arms themselves. Mrs. Susan Lear of Virginia wrote Governor John Letcher in April 1861, I, for one, feel able to protect a goodly number if I only had the means of defense. Send me a good musket, rifle, or double-barrel shotgun. I think I would prefer the latter as I am acquainted with its use. I believe, sir, if a regiment of Yankees were to come, we women would drive them away or quell a servile insurrection. On the southern side, as in the north, a few women disguised themselves as men and uh, donned the uniform and went to war with their husbands or their sweethearts. Uh, some of them were not of very good reputation. Uh, usually, uh, the sex of the women uh, posing as men was soon detected and uh, they were sent home. But at least two wives, Mrs. L.M. Blaylock, who enlisted as Sam Blaylock and went along to war with her husband, and Mrs. Amy Clark, both of North Carolina, had considerable service uh, with their spouses. And I found this uh, interesting commentary in the Sandusky, Ohio Register, December 12, 1864. Quote, one day last week, one of the rebel officers imprisoned on Johnson's Island gave birth to a bouncing boy. <laughs> this is the first instance of the father giving birth to the child that we have heard of. It is also the first case of a woman in rebel service that we have heard of. Though they are noted for goading their own men into the army 
and for using every artifice to befog and befurdle some of our men. Feminine patriots assist the South's armed forces in many ways. They smuggle pistols and medicines and other scarce items through the lines in their clothing or in their baggage. On August 29, 61, Mary B. Chestnut noted in her diary, all manner of things come over the border under the huge hoop skirts now worn. Not legs, but arms are looked for under hoops. And of course, so you know that various Confederate generals benefited from information provided to them by women spies, with uh, Rose Greenow, of course, being uh, perhaps the best known case, uh, having important contacts in Washington and uh, passing on to Beauregard the word that McDowell had received orders to advance and Beauregard passed the word on to Richmond and Jefferson Davis ordered Joseph E. Johnston over from the valley uh, to Manassas and that was an important factor in the Confederate victory. Some of the women spies were very young and perhaps the best known case of this is Emma Sampson who uh, told Forrest uh, where he could get across a creek uh, Black uh, Creek because a bridge had been destroyed and uh, this made it possible for him to capture Strait on the famous uh, Strait Raid. I suppose the most famous of the women spies was Belle Boyd of Martinsburg, West Virginia, who at great risk rode up and down the Shenandoah Valley uh, obtaining information for Stuart and uh, for Ashby and uh, Jackson. After being twice imprisoned, and released by the Federals, she embarked for England in May of 64, carrying a pres a papers for President Davis. Uh, a very interesting uh, Southern woman who uh, collaborated uh, with the Federals was Mary Boozer of Columbia, South Carolina, a Union sympathizer. And uh, when Judson Kilpatrick came through Columbia in 1865, uh, you know that he was one of the glamour boys on the Union side, though a thorough rogue he was. Uh, Mary took up with him and uh, became his mistress, and they went on up into North Carolina, and at Monroe, Monroe's Crossroads, North Carolina, March 10, 1865, uh, Wade Hampton made a surprise raid on the house where he was snuggled up with Mary Boozer and unchivalrously and ungallantly he jumped from the bed in his shirt tail and left his paramour, mounted his horse, and uh, made his escape. This is sometimes referred to uh, in history as uh, the Battle of Kilpatrick's Shirt Tail. <laughs> Innumerable women aided the Confederate cause by making clothes for soldier relatives and friends. And economic pressure and the exigencies of war caused many women, and especially those residing in the towns and cities, to seek employment in war industries and in government service. And they helped make uh, many balls and fuses and shells and uh, paper cartridges. Others labored in textile mills, garment factories, and uh, 200 young women uh, in the sub-treasury department, you might call it, uh, in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, were engaged uh, in numbering and signing Confederate notes, which by that time uh, had very little value. 
since the South was predominantly rural, and since most adult white males were in military service, women had to assume a major responsibility for running farms and uh, plantations. Relatively few of them had the assistance of Negroes, because in 1860, three-fourths of the Southern white people neither owned slaves nor belonged to slave-holding families. Hence, many women, with or without the help of children, had to plant the crops, and plow the fields, reap the harvest, kill the hogs, cure the meat, cut and haul the firewood, and maintain themselves and their families. Concerning the experience of one of these, Mrs. Aaron Thomas of North Carolina, a woman with a large family of small children, a local historian wrote, there were just not enough daylight hours for her to do all the tasks that must be done and still cultivate her crop. She would get all the children to bed and then go out to the fields to work at night. Despite this arduous manual labor, provisions were so scarce that she and her children became so accustomed to a two-meal regime per day that after the war was over and provisions had become plentiful, they never really enjoyed the third meal again. Upper-class women who took over the direction of plantations uh, sometimes uh, displayed uh, outstanding administrative ability. One of these was uh, Mrs. R.F.W. Alston of South Carolina, whose husband died in 1864, and she took over the management of several large rice plantations and several hundred slaves, and uh, she conducted this large operation with impressive success. Another South Carolina woman wrote in 1862, I am a planter for the first time. I insist upon myself being very energetic and making an appearance of knowing more than I do. Some women found the administration of plantations uh, onerous and uncongenial, and one of these was Mrs. W.W. W. Boyce, the wife of a South Carolina Confederate congressman. And uh, while her husband was in Congress in April 1862, she wrote it. I tell you candidly, all this attention to farming is uphill work for me. I can give orders first rate, but when I am not obeyed, I can't keep my temper. Women of all classes experienced great hardship during the war, and the plight of the poor, of course, was worse than that of the privileged. And those who suffered most were the women in the towns and in the cities. State, counties, uh, municipalities, and philanthropic societies provided some relief but their efforts fell far short of the need. Hunger caused bread riots in Richmond, in uh, Macon, and in Augusta, and Mobile had two serious bread riots uh, led by women in 1864. Confederate women suffered much from the depredations of both armies, Confederate and Union, and the following complaint registered by Eliza J. Mountcastle to an unidentified Confederate colonel is uh, typical of a situation that had many parallels throughout the South. Quote, Colonel, good sir, will you be so kind as to send a guard to my pig pen? The men is so mean, they have taken all my fowls, and talk about taking my only pig. I never saw such men in my life. I think it is unlawful for ladies to be treated so by a parcel of scamps. They are worse than the Yankees. They have destroyed everything I have but my pig, and my guess is that uh, they destroyed her pig in due time. As a general rule, women living in the invaded areas uh, suffered more 
than those uh, living in regions not penetrated by the federal forces. A Wisconsin corporal wrote at the conclusion of Sherman's March to the Sea in December 64, the cruelties practiced on the campaign toward citizens have been enough to block a more sacred cause than ours. We hardly deserve success. Stragglers under nobody's charge ransack the houses, taking every knife and fork, spoon, or anything else they take a fancy to, break open trunks and bureaus, taking women or children's clothing, or tearing them to pieces, besides taking everything eatable that can be found. There is certainly a lack of discipline in our army. And Sherman's forces were even more destructive in South Carolina than in Georgia because of a very strong feeling among the Union soldiers that South Carolina, because uh, it was the first of the Aryan sisters, the state that initiated secession, deserved special punishment. One soldier wrote just after completing the march through South Carolina, we burnt every house, barn, mill that we passed. We took just what we wanted, cry or no cry. Everybody knows what I know, that South Carolina has needed a good whipping, and she has got it right and left. And an Illinois preacher soldier wrote in his diary while in Charleston, South Carolina, in April 65, many of our boys will push into houses where only women are inmates and steal and rob all they can lay their unholy hands on and uh, often treat the women rudely. Uh, so the story uh, told by Margaret Mitchell in Gone with the Wind of the depredations and the pillaging uh, not by most of the soldiers, but uh, by the fringe, uh, certainly has abundant documentation in the letters of the Union soldiers, uh, most of whom uh, uh, reprehended uh, this practice, but it could not be controlled. Many women elected to flee with their families rather than to remain in the path of invasion. But as Mary Elizabeth Massey has shown in her excellent book, uh, Refugee Life in the Confederacy, uh, these displaced persons uh, frequently, if not usually, suffered more than those uh, who stayed put. What was the reaction of Southern women to federal invasion? Well, some greeted the Federals cordially, either because of a genuine uh, sympathy for the Union cause or because they hoped to ob obtain favors from the invading forces. But most of them, bore too deep a hatred for the men in blue to make any pretense of friendliness. Nanny Haskins, a teenager of Clarksville, Tennessee, wrote in her diary early in 1863, I never see a Yankee, but what I roll my eyes, grip my teeth, and almost shake my fist at it, and then bite my lip and turn away in disgust. On June 15, 1862, a Wisconsin officer in camp near Fredericksburg uh, wrote, they hate us, a dear Libby, you have no idea how bitter these people are in their hatred of us Yankees. They hate us all the way through, particularly the women. And in New Orleans and in other southern cities occupied by the federal forces, women cursed the men in blue, cheered for Jeff Davis, pretended to be nauseated when meeting uh, Union soldiers on the street, or stepped off of the sidewalks uh, to avoid proximity to these unsavory creatures. And uh, they also would step off the street to keep from walking under the Union flag. And some women from second-story windows doused the Federals with dishwater 
or with the contents of their chamber pots. You know, uh, the New Orleans prostitutes, uh, in, uh, according to Herbert Ashbury's book, The French Quarter, uh, had a peculiar way of expressing their disgust for General Butler, the commanding general of the occupying forces. They pasted his picture in the bottom of their tinkle pots and let go. <laughs> Major Abner Small of the 16th Maine Regiment wrote in his diary in July 1864, after being marched with other Union prisoners through the streets of Petersburg. He was a prisoner too. He wrote, The sidewalks were lined with old men, boys, and decrepit women who vied with one another in flinging insults and venom. The women were the worst of the lot. They spat upon us, laughed at us, and called us vile and filthy names. Now, we talk about... Uh, the gentility and the refinement of southern women, and many are genteel and refined. Maybe this is simply the degenerating influence of war uh, that would cause these southern women to spit upon helpless prisoners marching through the street, uh, men who could not retaliate and call them vile and filthy names. Confederate women uh, experienced some very great hardships, and one of the greatest of these was anxiety about the loved ones serving in the armed forces. On, in July 1863, a lowly Texas woman wrote to her sister, I am nearly crazy about my old man who was in the army. And the next year, a South Carolina lawyer wrote his friend, James Henry Hammond, My wife, strong and active, full of energy, with the will to accomplish all she desires, is showing failure symptoms. Her only two boys are in the field on their way to Virginia. She would not have them stay, and yet, in the still watches of the night, I can hear her deep sighs and sometimes suppressed moans. I know that she is thinking of them. And many Confederate women had several loved ones about whom to work, for normally families were large in the South, and the combined effects of the zeal of volunteering early in the war and of the draft in the last three years of the war, swept most of the adult males and many of the boys into service. Mrs. G.B. Bledsoe of Newton County, Mississippi, gave ten sons and five sons-in-law to Confederate service. And Mrs. G.B. Bledsoe, uh, Mrs. Uh, Ina Cook of Alabama, gave a husband, ten sons, and two grandsons to the Confederate Army. And Confederate women had good cause to be anxious about their menfolk in the army. Of the approximately one million Confederates who enlisted in the army, more than 258,000 failed to return home. And this means, of course, that more than one man out of every four who donned the grave failed to survive. And many who did come home were partially or totally incapacitated by wounds or Sisters. And some Confederate women wore, uh, bore a disproportionate amount or share of this heavy death toll. Mrs. Polly Ray, a widow of Cumberland County, North Carolina, lost all seven of her sons in the war. Mrs. Oren Palmer of Chatham County had four, son killed, four sons killed at Gettysburg. And Mrs. John Banks of Georgia lost three of her nine soldier sons in the Atlanta campaign. And Scott in her splendid book, Southern Lady, 
cites the remarkable instance of one mother who lost nine of her 12 sons uh, whom she sent to war. During the early part of the conflict, Southern women manifested an increase of religious interest and zeal. Church attendance increased. But after a while, this uh, zeal wore off and ministers complained about lagging church attendance and uh, the deterioration of the spirituality of uh, the people on the home front. And as religion declined, morale, uh, morals also declined. A Confederate major stationed near Knoxville wrote his wife in June 63, I will state as a matter of history that female virtue, if it ever existed in this country, seems now almost a perfect wreck. Prostitutes are thickly crowded through mountain and valley in hamlet and city. And six months later, a Confederate cap, uh, captain stationed near Chattanooga wrote in his diary, the war appears to have demoralized everybody. And rumor says that almost half the women in the vicinity of the army, married and unmarried, are lost to all virtue. And deterioration of morals was by no means confined to East Tennessee. A cavalry captain stationed in North Mississippi wrote his wife in March 64, there are numerous cases of illegitimacy among the wives of soldiers who have been gallantly fighting in Virginia for two years. In October 64, a Confederate private in camp near Pollard, Alabama, wrote his wife, we are in the poorest pine country you ever saw. The people can raise nothing but potatoes. The state of morals is quite as low as the soil. Almost all the women are given to whoredom. They are the ugliest, shaggy-headed, barefooted, dirty wretches you ever saw. Now, this is not a Yankee soldier commenting on the Southern women, but a Confederate uh, soldier. Prostitution flourished in the cities, and especially in the Confederate capital. The 10th Alabama Regiment went from rural Alabama early in the summer of 1861 to the environs of Richmond. And I have seen the health reports of that regiment uh, for July and August. In July, in a regiment with a mean strength of uh, slightly over a thousand, had 62 new cases of gonorrhea and six new cases of syphilis, uh, which just proves that uh, Confederate soldiers uh, were like soldiers of all other wars, uh, getting away from the restraints of home and community, uh, having an opportunity, knowing that the future was uncertain, decided to experiment with the flesh pots and uh, much uh, to their hurt. When I was doing the research for the life of Johnny Reb, a good many Confederate veterans were still living in the Confederate soldiers' home in Atlanta. And uh, I didn't know that I was pioneering in oral history, but I arranged an interview through Colonel Spencer, the head of the place, with about 15 or 20 of these old men. And they got out on the lawn, it was a beautiful day, and uh, one of them acted as spokesman. I asked a few routine questions about food, clothing, arms, and so forth. And then I asked a question that was really bothering me. What about camp followers? <laughs> Prostitutes. I don't mean to make any association here. <laughs> and the old man who was acting as spokesman drew himself up in obvious anger and said, Sir, I would have you know we didn't have that kind of man in the Confederate Army. <laughs> well, I just couldn't believe that, 
And it was only a few months later that I stumbled on these health reports uh, up in the National Archives and uh, found out uh, the real truth. Hunger was a contributing factor to the prostitution of a good many of the Southern women. A Confederate officer who made an inspection of the Army of Tennessee at Dalton in April 64 reported that lewd women are, quote, impregnating this whole command. I was a little puzzled by his choice of words, <laughs> but uh, that's the way he put it. And he said, the commissariat has been frequently robbed with a view of supporting these disreputable characters. And in beta day res, needy one women sometimes were pressured into prostitution by the offer of federal provisions. In September 1864, a Confederate woman living near Atlanta wrote her husband that she had been approached by Union soldiers who told her, quote, if I would, W-O-D, comedate, C-O-M-E-D-A-T-E, them, I never should suffer for nothing. They would fetch me anything to eat I wanted. And according to her letter to her husband, she told the soldiers that she was an honest, O-N-I-S, woman, and would see them burnt alive before she would yield to their lust. But she informed her husband that several married neighbors whom she named were H-O-R-I-N with the Federals in exchange for flour and for meat and meal and sugar and crackers and coffee. It is not meant to suggest that wrongdoing was universal among Confederate women in invaded areas or anywhere else, but there can be no doubt that the war caused a deterioration of morals and that immorality was much more common in 1865 than in 1861. I have a section on, on black women here, but uh, I'm going to uh, delete that uh, in the interest of your comfort and my brevity and pass on to diversions. What did the women do uh, to while away time and to relieve the anxiety and the loneliness and other hardships? Some read, and Mrs. Chestnut, of course, was one of those who derived a special pleasure from reading. Others traveled, and the amount of traveling uh, that went on in the uh, beleaguered Confederacy is nothing short of remarkable. And uh, still others attended entertainments. Many derived pleasure and comfort from corresponding with relatives and friends in the Army. Now, as a rule, the letters of wives to their husbands are devoid of comments about physical aspects of love owing to the inhibitions uh, associated with the Victorian period. But one who reads between the lines, so to speak, gets the impression that marital relationships of the 1860s were very much like those of today. A Confederate wife who addressed her husband as sweetest, precious, darling, charming Billy, wrote him in 1864, Honey, I do so much dislike this way we are living. You way in one part of the world and me in another. Sometimes I think I'm doing very well, and then I get to studying about you, and I get the all-overs. <laughs> get in a perfect fever. I have got a spell this evening, and I feel like I would give a world of confederacies just to be with you. On April 22, 1864, a South Carolina woman wrote her husband, My loving John, I feel like I would squeeze, S-Q-U-E-E-S, and hug, H-U-G-E, you to death if I had a chance. You should not sleep in a week. 
W-E-E-A-K. <laughs> when I got my arms around you, when you get home, I will make up for lost time. So you may hold yourself in readiness. <laughs> I hope you made it home. Uh, fear of pregnancy, of course, uh, was uh, a course of great concern. Some wives prolonged the nursing period of their infants in the widespread belief uh, that uh, lactation was a deterrent to conception. And get-togethers, however eagerly anticipated, were nearly always followed by periods of anxiety. General Dorsey Pender wrote his wife after one of her visits to camp to him in 1862, quote, my mind was very much relieved to hear that you were not as I had imagined. If you do not want children, you will have to remain away from me. And hereafter, when you come to see me, I shall know that you want another baby. <laughs> Isn't that perfect? I, I'm so sorry uh, that the pill was post-Confederate. Uh, many women held strong views regarding military policy and public affairs and manifested a readiness to express themselves uh, to family and friends. These views were often sound. After Chickamauga, Mrs. Braxton Bragg wrote her husband, I fear our victory is like all we are ever permitted to gain, undecisive, underscored, and with fearful loss of men. Rosecrans still holds the points he, underscored, aimed at, Chattanooga, East Tennessee, Cumberland Gap. And such perceptive observations uh, makes one wonder if Ms. Bragg, rather than Braxton, should not have worn the general stars. <laughs> Another leading Confederate later, lady who expressed herself without inhibition to her husband was Mary Ann Cobb, the wife of General Howell Cobb, who, after being president of the Provisional Congress, uh, became a major general. And in her letters to her husband, uh, two of her favorite targets were Governor Joseph Brown of Georgia, whom she loathed, and Vice President Alexander Stevens. Concerning a minor in incident involving the equipping of Cobb's Legion, commanded by her brother-in-law, she wrote, I have not been so excited, not to say mad, for some time. I believe, really, it was a snare of the devil to entrap me into speaking unadvisedly with my lips. I did so considerably. Brown, Stevens, and Toombs were my topics. And after the famous peace talk at Hampton Roads in February 65, she wrote her husband, Paul went to the good Ananias to receive his sight again, but Stevens had to go to Lincoln and Seward. Wives of Confederate congressmen sometimes offered opinions concerning legislation. Ms. James G. Ramsey of North Carolina wrote her congressman husband, taking a strong position against putting blacks in the Confederate Army. She wrote in November 64, if you ever vote to arm the Negroes, you need not come home. Uh, Ms. Ramsey was no clinging vine, and the same may be said of many other Confederate women who spoke their views and were listened to with respect by their menfolk. Most women were very tactful when giving advice on matters not purely domestic. Mrs. John C. Breckinridge, in offering a suggestion concerning the staff of her husband, General Breckinridge, stated, I have no right to say anything except privately, and as you advocate free speech, I may venture to, an ex to express an opinion. And she went on and expressed one. Wives who were compelled by the fortune of war 
to take over the direction of farms and plantations usually were very careful to seek the counsel of their absent husbands concerning details of management. The men were undoubtedly pleased by the deference to their judgment, but often their response was, in effect, do what you think is best, and some expressed appreciation of the women's achievements, among them a Georgia lieutenant who wrote his wife in 1862, you will get to be such a managing busybody by the time I get back that I have made up my mind to give up everything and bow in meek humility to petticoat government and submit quietly to your tyrannical rule, curtain lectures included. And a Georgia private in 63 informed his wife, I cannot pass over without letting you know how well pleased I am with your management of affairs. I have almost come to the conclusion that if you have good luck, you will get rich. One of the most notable attributes of the Southern women was their staunchness in adversity. This shines through their correspondence and their diaries. Mrs. J.B. Jett, who sustained herself and several children by running a farm near Atlanta, wrote our soldier husband as the Federals approached the neighborhood in 1864. I don't know what to do. I hain't got the money to take us off, so we will have to stay and stand the test. Don't be uneasy about me. I intend to do the best I can. The invaders reached her house, they ransacked it, they killed her hogs, they took her corn and her wheat, but she managed to eke out a living until the end of the war. Comparable to her in resourcefulness and stamina was a lowly Virginia woman who laid in the war while struggling mightily to provide herself and her children, wrote her husband, don't be uneasy about us. We will try and take care of ourselves the best we can. I don't mind what I do, just so you can get back safe. And no class of Confederate women demonstrated more of character and of endurance than did the yeoman class. Theirs was by far the greater burden. Some of them were broken in spirit by the enormous hardship to which they were subjected in the latter part of the war, deprived of their menfolk by a draft that allowed no exemption for dependence, and victimized by inflation, speculation, and hoarding, they poured out their woes in pitiful letters to state governors and other officials. And the state governor who was written to in greater profusion and detail was Governor Vance of North Carolina, who had the ability to make himself uh, seem close to the lowly people. And uh, I've read many of those letters. One of them is written by Elizabeth Sampson in July 63. The mother, she was, of four little children. She wrote, Dear Governor, my children cries a many a time for something to eat, and I can't get it for them. Sometime I have a little cornbread to eat, and sometime not that. I have been three and four days without a mouthful in the house. Of her husband, who had been in the Army for two years, she wrote, I would like to know what he is fighting for. I don't think he is fighting for anything, only for his family to starve and go naked. Even more poignant must have been the letters written by these lowly, suffering women to their husbands. But these letters have not been preserved. One was preserved because it was used as evidence in a court-martial against the soldier for deserting. 
and it's published in the official records. My dear Edward, she wrote her husband, I have always been proud of you, and since your connection with the Confederate Army, I have been prouder than you of you than ever before. I would not have you do anything wrong for the world. But before God, Edward, unless you come home, we must die. Last night I was aroused by little Eddie's cry. I called and said, What is the matter, Eddie? And he said, Oh, Mama, I am so hungry. And Lucy, Edward, your darling Lucy, she never complains, but she is growing thinner and thinner every day. And before God, Edward, unless you come home, we must die. You are married. Well, Edward went home. And so did hundreds and thousands of others who received similar letters that last winter of the war. General Lee, in February 65, wrote Governor Vance that despondent letters of this sort were severely weakening his army and asking the governor to try to get influential citizens to cheer the spirits of the people. But it was too late. Failure of the Confederacy to alleviate the suffering of the lowly people, of the families at home, probably contributed more to Southern defeat than any other single factor. Suffering was inevitable, of course, but it could have been lessened by better utilization of the Confederacy's resources and, by, and made more tolerable by more equitable treatment of the poor. One especially flagrant injustice was the exemption of owners of 20 slaves from the draft and the failure to allow any exemption at all to the lowly people who didn't own slaves. The amazing thing is not the number of poor women who lost heart and beseeched their husbands to return home, but rather that so many endured their hardship with little or no complaint, and that some had a sufficient surplus of character and spiritual stamina to enable them to write encouraging letters to their menfolk in the army. Colonel James C. Nisbet, who commanded a Georgia regiment made up largely of yeomanry, wrote after the war, it was upon the women that the greatest burden of this war fell. While the men were carried away with the drunkenness of the war, they dwelt in the stillness of their desolated homes. May the movement to erect monuments in every southern state to our heroic southern women carve in marble a memorial to their cross and passion. And the tribute was well deserved. However, the monuments standing in the town squares of the South today are not to the heroic women, but rather to the men whom they sent to war in 61 and whom they sustained with their labor and with their prayers. Unquestionably, theirs was the greater sacrifice, and to them should be accorded far more honor they have yet received. Finally, what was the effect of the war on the status of Southern women? It did not transform the South into a matriarchy, as John Andrews Rice half-jokingly stated in his book, I Came Out of the 18th Century. But as Ann Scott has shown in The Southern Lady, the war and the reconstruction that followed it did weaken the patriarchy. The Southern male whose dominance both sexes accepted in antebellum times, lost caste by suffering defeat in the war that he made and conducted. And when he came home from the war, he could not logically regard and treat as utterly inferior 
the woman who had successfully managed farm or plantation during his absence. The sensible thing to do was for husband and wife to pool their judgment and their energy in an effort to cope with the problems of reconstruction. And this is what many, if not, if not most of them, actually did. Men were slow to recognize women's changing status as witness the prolonged opposition to granting them the suffrage and admitting them to the medical profession. But women did forge ahead, and the fact that they made more progress in the 49 years between 1865 and World War I than in the 78 years from the Revolution to 1861 shows that the Civil War provided a springboard from which they leaped beyond the circumscribed women's sphere into that heretofore reserved for men. Now, I promised to talk a little bit about Mrs. Chestnut and her diary, and uh, to do that, I'm going to show you some samples from Ben uh, Williams' of the diary, uh, and from Mrs. Chestnut's uh, to review very quickly. Uh, Mrs. Mary Boykin Chestnut was the wife of uh, James Chestnut of South Carolina, one of the largest slave holders in South Carolina, and uh, she was well educated in private schools in Camden, South Carolina, and in Charleston. And uh, when she was 17, she married James Chestnut, then 25, a graduate of Princeton. He practiced law and in politics, and in 1858, he went to the United States Senate. And there, uh, she was a leader in society because of her wealth, and her charm, her sparkle, her intelligence, I don't think she was beautiful in the usual sense of the word, but certainly she was a thoroughly attractive woman. And when the war came along, he was appointed a member of the Provisional Congress in Charleston, in Montgomery, and uh, went on to Richmond. And then he was the Navy Bodyguard, and then military Navy General Davis for about a year and a half, and then Major General of South Carolina troops in the last part of the war. In November 1860, she started keeping the data and she kept it up through the war. It was published first in 1905 under the condition of uh, Murder Rocket Avery, a professional writer, and Isabella Martin, a close friend of this chapter during the war, to whom she bequeathed the document. About 150,000 words in that edition, and a lot of the juiciest stuff left out of it by these good names. And then many Williams in 1949 edited uh, another edition of about 300,000 words out of a total of about 400,000 words. And he didn't leave out uh, anything because he thought it ought to be conceived. Uh, he did uh, take uh, some uh, liberties uh, with uh, the diary, uh, liberties of the historian wouldn't take. Uh, but he didn't change the substance of it, uh, except in one or two particulars, which I will uh, bring out. And it's a very readable book. But in doing this chapter on this exception, which I should say is one of four sections of a little book treatise of Southern women, and I had three women in types, Mrs. Chestnut, Confederate Intellectual, Mrs. Davis, uh, First Lady, Wife and Mother, and uh, Mrs. Clemency Clay, Southern Belle. Uh, she had a bell complex. She never got over it. She ran through two husbands and uh, lived to be nine herself and gave a great big party a few weeks before she died and went out with the anniversary of Glory. And I'm actually saying Peter was in the receiving line uh, when 
Isaiah types, and then the final chapter is the one that I have summarized for you in this talk. Uh, Mrs. Testament uh, rewrote the diary after the war, and she rewrote some of it several times. There are three of the volumes, however, that can be identified as original volumes as they were written during the war, covering the period of November 1860 to October 1861. I found a letter that she wrote to Mrs. Davidson in 1883, saying, I'm having a lot of fun rewriting my diary. I want you to read it, but not yet, because I have to make some more changes. And you'll understand in a minute why uh, she had to make uh, some more changes. Now, the first thing I'm going to show you uh, is a delightful letter written by Mary Chapman when she was an eight-year-old girl, uh, written to her father, who was then uh, in the United States Senate. Uh, I'll have to do a little uh, juggling of the paper. Plain Hill, South Carolina, March 30, 1832. My dear father, it gives me great pleasure to write to you every Saturday when I come home. Mother says uh, she received a letter from you this morning. 